Our reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and it's starting at verse 11. So that's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You're right, Steve. It is very wet up here. There we go. <laughs> Great. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. We pray now that you would give us ears to hear it and minds to understand it and a heart and a will that desires to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We are family. I've got all my sisters with me. Perhaps the next line of that song will be good before our final hymn. We are family. Get up, everybody, and sing. That might be a good one. That was, of course, Sister Sledge. Don't let it be said that I'm uh, not a hot, you know, right on the, on the current trends. 1979, a disco classic. Four literal sisters with the surname Sledge. I only learned that this week. But that song's been used over and over on all sorts of things, in adverts and TVs and films and things like that, to describe all sorts of things, whether that is a close group of friends, we're family, or a political party. Or sometimes maybe in an office or a workplace, they say, oh, we're like a family here. We are family was the tagline for McCain oven chips for a number of years. We are family. We're so used to people who aren't actually family, calling themselves family, <laughs> that it's possible to miss what a big deal it is that church gets described as a family. But it is. And that's what we're focusing on this morning, the idea that church is a family. Our normal way of doing things, if you're not normally here, our normal way of doing things is just pick a book of the Bible, start at the beginning and, and work our way through. Just read the next bit the next week and look at that. But we've been doing since the new year a short series which looks at five pictures the Bible gives us of what the church is. So we've seen it, it's like a building, it's like a bride, it's like a flock. And we're thinking this week about church as a family. And not just any old family, the church is God's family. The church is God's Family. Our passage in, in 2 Corinthians 13 starts off with something so common that we can just skim over it and miss it. That the church are referred to in family terms. So verse 11, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Christians are spoken about as brothers and sisters. That happens 12 times just in this letter of 2 Corinthians. It happens over 200 times in the New Testament. If you talk about that, that's, that's nearly double the number of times that church gets used. We're called believers only 53 times. We're called Christians only three times in the whole Bible. But brothers and sisters, that is by far 
the most common way to describe us because the church is God's family. Now, we're going to look at these verses in 2 Corinthians in a bit more detail uh, in a few minutes. But first, I want us to just zoom out so we see that. We see that amazing truth more clearly. Family was incredibly important in the time of the New Testament. Your, your identity was your family. The big questions we worry ourselves with, what, who am I going to marry and, and what job will I do and where will I live? Well, that's all decided for you by family. Family is everything. Extended families, living together, not moving away. Working together in the family business, all run out of the home. You just didn't do things in isolated ways, make your own isolated decisions. Everything came back to family. So loyalty and respect and commitment and faithfulness to family, that was absolutely paramount. And so when Jesus comes along, he's absolutely shocking when he says things like this in Matthew 12, and his biological family think that he's gone crazy, he, that's Jesus, replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And that's a shocking thing to say in 2023. Your mum's outside, she's wanting to, you know, have, there's, there's, she's very, very worried about you. Mum? Who's mum? These guys are my mum. These guys are my family. It's, it's talking about a deeper connection with other believers, even than there is with unbelieving family, which at that point included his mother, Mary. Oh, other believers, well, they are my family. That is an absolutely huge thing. And I wonder whether we've grasped the implications of that for our families. That we've still got obligations to our parents and our children and our siblings and all of that. But that the church is now our family in a new way, in a profound way. The church is a family that goes across racial lines and national lines. So, so when explaining how Gentiles like me, non-Jews, can be included in God's plans... Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 19. Consequently, because of what Jesus has done, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. They're saying you're not far away and distant and disconnected. You're no longer on opposite teams. You're no longer in rival factions. Now, in Christ, in the church, Jews and Gentiles, and what other way you might want to split us up into two camps, are part of the same household. That means family. That is what Jesus does for us. He brings us into God's family. What a beautiful verse 1 John 3 verse 1 is. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Adopted children of God, loved by him. So when we think of church as family, we shouldn't first of all think brothers and sisters, one another. We first of all think about our father that we have in common. That's, what, that's who it all begins with. That we were once fighting against him like rebellious children, kicking out at him, rebelling, rejecting him, wanting nothing to do with him, nothing to do with his rules and his ways. But Jesus came to heal all of that. He came to pay for our rebellion. He came to bring us forgiveness, to bring us home. 
to our Father God. We get to know the Father who gave us life and who loves us, who loves us more than we ever dared hope that he might. Everybody who trusts in Jesus values what we are. The church is God's family. So if you're with us here this morning and you don't yet trust in Jesus, maybe you're just visiting because of the baptisms or or you had no idea that was happening, you just showed up, you are very, very welcome here to this family gathering, if you like. But we hope it's not the sort of family gathering where you go, this is not my family, this is weird. Because God's family is supposed to be a welcoming family. It has to be a welcoming family because nobody was in it by default. We're all people who were very far away but who God has welcomed in. And that's true even of people who didn't seem very far away. So both John and Elizabeth, who got baptised today, have Christian parents. They've grown up around these things, but they reached a point of saying, I need this. This isn't just my family's faith. This is my faith. This is what I believe. And we might think that's a big step of independence, and it is, but it's also a step into a deeper network of relationships. It's saying, this, isn't, this is my family, but now also, this is my family. I'm part of that wider church family of God. I can remember when I got baptised, my parents gave me a card, and it said, Dear Nathan, our son and our brother. That was a wonderful, wonderful truth. That idea that as we turn to Jesus in faith, we are adopted into the family. So we might come one by one, but we're not on our own. Now, I wonder whether some of the ways we talk about faith can leave us quite isolated. So it's just me relating to Jesus. I do bad things. I need to be forgiven. I say sorry. Jesus forgives me. And all of that is so wonderfully true. But that is not the whole picture. I do do bad things and I do need to be forgiven. But the bad things I do affect other people. The bad things I do when I'm selfish, it cuts me off from others and it puts me out of sorts with them. The God I've rejected is the father of a family. And so it makes sense that when I'm rescued, when I'm restored to him, I'm restored to that family. We get familified, if you like, taken from being on our own and put in a family. We don't get to have God on his own. He always comes with the kids. They say you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Well, that is absolutely true, and it's true about church as well. Like it or not, we have brothers and sisters. You might have been an only child. You might have wished you were. I was talking to to Carl last week. Is this true? Are you the one who is one of 17? Yes, Carl's dad is one of 17 children. Fantastic. Great to have you with us today. Well, if we're Christians, then we've got much more than 17 brothers and sisters. There's more than that even in this room, in this local church family. But we've got to understand that, that that is just true. The Bible doesn't tell us to be a family. It tells us we are a family. Sam Albury says it like this. Our eternal family in Christ is not the people with the same last name as us, but the people who are being baptized into the same name as us. The blood of Jesus is thicker than the blood of biology. Saying the church is God's family. So we need to consider ourselves to be that. If you're trusting in Jesus, to see each other that way, because that is the truth. And the more we understand that, 
that the church is God's family, the more we are going to live like God's family. We're going to live like that. And that's the way to apply all this. That's where, where this bit in, in 2 Corinthians comes in. Since we are family, we need to live like it. And these commands in, in that section that Lib read out for us, they're so relational, aren't they? There's lots of restoration and peace and greetings and love. Live like God's family. But what is family like? I uh, dangerously asked our children what they think live like family means. They jokingly suggested arguing all the time. I'm assuming that was a joke because that doesn't bear any resemblance whatsoever to our family. But some people will find this call to family a very difficult thing based on their family at home or their experience growing up. They might say, well, church like a family. Well, if it's anything like my family, no, thank you. And so it's important to define this the way the Bible does. We need to live like God's family, not necessarily like our families. Hopefully in time, our families might become a bit more like God's family. But in these verses, living like family means a few things in particular. It means being united. Being united. Have a look in verse 11. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. There's so much there about unity, isn't it? To be of one mind is about being in agreement. Not necessarily about everything, but on those big things. As a church, we need to be united in what we believe. Clear what that is from the Bible. And sometimes people talk about doctrine or theology as if that is always divisive or that always causes trouble. But no, a focus on the truth helps us to be of one mind helps us to be united in the gospel, because it is that good news of Jesus that unites us. But this isn't just about doctrine, it is about relationships. You can be united on paper, can't you, while scratching each other's eyes out in practice. And that's not what God's family should be like. It says we should live in peace. Now, the people in Corinth, who this was written to, were falling out. They were falling out with everybody. They'd fallen out with Paul. That's why he's writing this letter. They'd fallen out with one another. There were particular people who'd done particularly bad things, and they'd all fallen out with them. And so when he says at the end, live in peace, this isn't saying, well, just carry on as you are, holding hands, sitting in a circle, singing Kumbaya. No, he's saying those relationships need to get fixed. If they're going to live in peace, then the warring and the fighting needs to stop. So it's worth asking, is there anybody, is there anybody especially here with whom you are not at peace, with whom you are not united with, you are not of one mind with? Well, that's normal, that's totally normal, but it does need to be sorted out. This is a long-established church. The, the, the last church I was serving in was about five years old. The church before that didn't exist until we started it. Uh, so, you know, there are some churches that have not been very going very long. This church has been going a long time, and that is a wonderful thing. But it also means it's possible for there to be issues that go back a long time. Somebody says something, somebody does something decades ago, and it still spoils things now. And in some families, you just don't talk about problems. You just squash it down. But it's not like that in God's family. 
We need to live at peace. We need to work through these things. We need to gently say, can we talk about what happened? Or ask for forgiveness. Or say, do you know what? Actually, I just need to give it up. But we resolve these things. Church can be dysfunctional family, but it is a united family. It is. So we need to live like we are. Living like a family also means being encouraging. So we're told to rejoice and to encourage one another. God puts us in a family because it is so tough to follow him on our own. We need other people to spur us on. We need other people to give us that urging that we need to keep living for Jesus, keep trusting him. So we need to be involved together. We need to be in relationships where we speak to one another and speak truth to each other more than just about the football yesterday, as great as it was. Shouldn't be that happy about 3-0 against Preston North End, should I? But anyway, we can talk about more important things, if you can imagine that, than how Spurs did yesterday. More important things than what we got up to. Although we do talk about those things too, because family do that. What did you do today? How was school? How was that? We talk about all sorts of things. But it is also about talking about those deeper things, those ways of encouraging each other. So I hope you find services like this encouraging, particularly when we're looking at the Word together and singing together. But encouragement is not just from the front. We are encouraging one another, aren't we? We've all got a part to play in that as we encourage each other to grow to increasingly be more like Jesus, to to display the family likeness, encouraging each other to bear fruit so that our lives show that we are God's children. I think that's what Paul means in verse 11 when he says, strive for full restoration. That's not just fixing broken relationships. Um, Back in verse 5 of this chapter, he's told them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's encouraging them to to look at your lives, make sure you are living as you ought to be. They've had real issues in that church. He's needed to warn them about things that need to change. And at the end of verse 9, he says, our prayer is that you may be fully restored. That's the same word in verse 11, full restoration. So it's about more than just mending the relationships. It's saying you as individuals, you as a church family, we together, things have gone a bit wrong and we want to be fully restored, mending things, mending our ways, restoring our faith, repairing our walk with Jesus. So church should be the sort of family where that's what we're aiming for. We want to fully restore one another. That's what we're striving for, this says, what we're aiming for. So we're not just disinterested strangers. We are family, so we care about one another, and in particular, we care about each other's growth and progress with the Lord. That's what it is to be really encouraging, not just to say something nice. Oh, I like your jumper. That's sort of encouraging. No, it's actually encouraging people to keep going. And then we get to verse 12, which is super family-ish, isn't it? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Or in other words, be affectionate. I think the idea is that love isn't just a thought in our head or a feeling in our heart, or even an activity in our diary. Love makes us a church family that is affectionate. Have you thought about that? Five times in the New Testament, we are told to kiss each other. You see that? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, what does that mean? What is the difference between a holy kiss 
and an unholy kiss. About 30 seconds is what one person suggested. But no, 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 no. It's not that. It's not that. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. The holy bit is saying, well, because we are holy, because our relationships are holy, so when we're relating to each other, there's nothing manipulative about it. There's nothing sexual about it. There's nothing false or fake about it. A holy kiss is about genuinely warm relationships where we're not just casual acquaintances. We're people we greet because we're pleased to see them. Now, in that culture, you would kiss your family. And Paul says, okay, then extend that out to your church family then. So it doesn't have to be a kiss, does it? When uh, J.B. Phillips was paraphrasing the Bible into modern English in the 1950s, he translated this as, a handshake all round, please. Which is dreadfully, dreadfully English, isn't it? But it's, it's not entirely wrong. It's sort of saying, how would you treat somebody that you actually like, <laughs> that you love, well, treat church like that then. Hugs and waves and smiles, high fives or fist bumps or whatever. During COVID, it had to be elbow bumps and things, didn't it? Whatever it is, be affectionate. Now, some people in church do not want to be touched, and that is fine. We've got a right to personal space. This is not saying go kiss everyone now. We've got to be careful on that. But this is saying be appropriately affectionate. Oh, yeah, that's nice. You're married. That's fine. (laughs) In the first century, Christians were accused of a lot of stuff. So uh, they called Christians atheists because they didn't have any statues. So it must be that they don't have any gods. They called Christians cannibals because apparently they eat this meal where they say it's this guy's body and blood. It's really weird. And Christians in the early church were accused of incest. This is true. Christians were accused of being incestuous because never before had the world seen so many people so affectionate with one another. Even the husbands and wives call each other brother and sister. This is scandalous. Now, it's quite funny when you think of it now, but I wonder, could that same misunderstanding be held against us? Could people go, those Christians are just so affectionate. It's like they're related or something. Have you been to Wem Baptist Church? See them over coffee after the service? They really like each other. It's really weird. Sister Sledge, I have been listening to that this week. There's a line at the beginning that says, All the people around us, they say, can they be that close? I might be reading more into those words than it should do. But I wonder again, could people say that of us? Wow, this is this is amazing. Or would they be more likely to say, I thought they said it was like a family. So let's live like family. And for all this to happen, it needs to be deliberate. I didn't snap through there. There we go. It needs to be deliberate. We live in a very busy day and age where even our natural families, we find it hard to have time together. How hard is it going to be to live like family with church unless we do it on purpose. So verse 11 talks about striving for this. It's not easy. It's not automatic. And as British people, not everybody here might be British, but if you are, you're going to find this especially difficult. It's been noticed typically British ambitions are to put as much space as possible between yourself and everybody else. So when you have enough money, you will move away from people. And the ideal life is Fewer neighbours, less interaction, more space. Even from the people you live in, we want more space, 
more distance. And we don't even realize how lonely that is, how much it cuts us off from other people. How could we deliberately live like the family we are? Well, those of us who have biological families nearby, can we open those up to let other people in who don't have that sort of family? We serve a saviour who was single. Are we, as a church, doing enough to honour single people or widowed people or people whose home life is not straightforward? Are we a church where married people have friends other than their spouse? Where people whose biological family is far away, but they're not left without company or babysitters or meals or all those other things? Where we rally round each other in a crisis like a family does? Now, praise God, I do see loads of that happening here. But we mustn't assume it. We need to be deliberate, don't we? We need to prioritise it. Prioritise if you can. I know people have commitments, and it's right to have commitments to your family. But some people have commitments, so they can't stay on after church, and that's okay. But if you are able to, stay on afterwards for coffee. Stay on, try and have deeper conversations. Even if you just go, what did you think about the service? And then see where the conversation goes. Saying hello to people we don't know. Going and speaking to someone who, who just always sits on the other side of the building and you never chat. If you're in a group and someone is not, go and talk to them. It's a church lunch next week, so if you're able to stay, that would be great. You can sign up. Uh, maybe join a home group. Maybe if you're in a home group and haven't been going for a while, start going again. All these different ways that we deliberately say, I want to open a Bible, open my life, have time with people together to have a cup of tea or drop somebody a text or have someone else in your house. Whatever it is, it's that deliberate way of saying the church is God's family, so let's live like it. United, living at peace, encouraging each other to grow, deliberately making room for each other. Now, if any of that is going to happen, it's going to be God's work. And that's why I just want to finish on much more briefly that God is with us. God is with us. We can live like that family because God is with us. It is his family. He's part of the family. He's here. And that's the promise in verse 11, the promise at the end of the instructions. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. God is with us. He will be with us when we seek to live like this. We can love each other because he's the God of love. We can live at peace because he's the God of peace. So church is not just horizontal. It is fundamentally vertical as well. Can you imagine a family with only children in it? What a disaster that would be. Rip each other to shreds. Well, God's family isn't like that. He is a family where the Father remains with us. Indeed, this, this talks about all three persons of the Trinity at work in and through the church, which is where the prayer in verse 14 comes in. Very famous prayer, often known as the grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, to which... You might want to, evermore, amen. It seems weird to not say that at the end. And it's a great thing to say. We are going to say that to one another later on. 
It's a wonderful prayer to pray because it is about the empowering presence of God with us. How are we going to live like family? How are we going to do that? We're going to need grace and love and fellowship. And we have all of those in God. We have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is God's mercy, God's kindness that we don't deserve poured out through Jesus. That grace that leads us to know the love of God, that is God the Father. We come to know, we come to understand that we're his children and he loves us and he loves his other children too. And we experience all of that through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the the togetherness, the partnership, the communion, the sharing which the Spirit gives, the fellowship with God, the fellowship with one another. And, And this prayer is saying, may all of that, all of that grace and love and fellowship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may that be with all of us. And he will be. Because we've been shown grace, we can show grace. Because we've been loved, we can love each other. Because we enjoy God's fellowship, we can enjoy fellowship together. Because we actually are a family.